knowing that you are here for this special time, this special service that we have. Normally in June, we have this time of parent dedication, parent commitment, but of course due to COVID and what's transpired, we held off to where we felt it was safe to hold it. Um, we will have another one in June. Of course, we have four new mothers that will have four babies for that service as well, plus those that are not participating in this service today. But we do welcome those that visit with us. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this wonderful privilege that we have to gather again today on the Lord's Day to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, that you give us one day in seven to come together to cooperatively worship you and feed upon your word. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would move in this place today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would work in our hearts, Father, so that we might be convicted of sin and that we might repent. We pray especially for those that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own ignorance, but you have given us your very word to teach us and instruct us in the way that we should live. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in us, that enables us to be able to do that which you have commanded us to do. And we do pray, Father, as we study your word this day and think upon training up a child in the way that he should go, and we pray that you would give us understanding. And we pray, Father, for each family that is here today, that you would give them wisdom and knowledge in fulfilling the duty that you have called them to. And we pray for each one of our children, not only these who will be presented today, but we pray for all of our children, that you would be pleased to save them in an early age, that even today might be the day of salvation. We also pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us, we know that there are those that cannot come to worship because of the virus, and we pray that you would watch over them and protect them, and that they, as they join us, Father, through the internet, that you would bless them as well. We pray for those who are sick, that your healing hand would be upon their body, that you'd be pleased to restore their health so that they might join us soon for worship, and that they might testify of your goodness in their life. We pray, Father, for our sister churches throughout the world that proclaim the gospel this day, that you would use them and that many would be brought into your kingdom. Again, we ask that your blessings be upon us, and we thank you for your goodness and grace and salvation. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, and for his sake and glory, amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22. Only one verse that I want to read from there this morning, verse 6, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. As a little girl, Mary was taken to church every Sunday by her mother, but eventually she put up a barrier between her and the church, and she eventually decided that she would leave the church as a teenager. She stopped attending and got a job and moved out and lived a worldly life. She ignored the institution of marriage and having a family. Those things were old-fashioned to her, 
just like worshiping God. Later, she fell in love with a man and moved in with him. But after living together for some time, she did not find satisfaction, so she decided to marry. And when her sister had children, her opinion about motherhood also changed. And in fact, many things in her life began to change. And as she had watched her mother go through a number of crises in her life, and she continued to trust in God, and she often told her daughter, knowing that God is in control helps me day by day, or I could simply not make it. She saw how her mother was strengthened each day by putting her trust in the Lord, and soon she found herself even praying, and particularly praying for motherhood. Then her and her husband started going to church each Lord's Day, and they eventually became parents. And soon after, she made a profession of faith, stating that she had become a Christian and followed Christ in believer's baptism. Pastor Jeff Thomas had sowed and watered for many years, and in God's timing, he gave him the increase. God has often used babies being born into a family to bring parents to the reality of their own need of salvation. When God gives parents a child, they have a new, enormous responsibility, whether they realize it or not. And sad to say, most parents do not realize the gravity of what God has done in blessing them with a child. Parents must answer some questions. How are we going to raise our children? What are we going to teach them? Are we going to raise them in the admonition of the Lord? Are we going to live in a way that reveals that God is of utmost importance? Are we going to lead them to know God by teaching them truth at home and taking them to church each Lord's Day? Christian parents must first and foremost answer these questions. Now, two passages that I want us to think upon this morning. This one that I read in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And the second one is the passage that we looked at this morning in our, Old Test I mean our New Testament reading where we saw that Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary. Mary and Joseph both kept the commandment that God had given them that was of the ceremonial law. First, they circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. Every Jewish parent understood the importance of circumcising their boy, firstborn especially, on the eighth day after this baby was born. And we know that Mary and Joseph were God-fearing parents, so therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord. And this was the beginning of wisdom and blessed parenthood for them. Now, in all likelihood, Joseph was the one who performed the circumcision because it was many years later that actually 
the rabbis took this on. Now, of course, we know today in our modernized world, we have it done in the hospital before we leave if we choose to do so. Now, God, of course, no longer requires us to circumcise our boys for it was part of the ceremonial law that, of course, was fulfilled in Christ. But we know that most choose to do so before they leave the hospital for a number of reasons. Now, why did God require the Jews to do this particular act? Well, there's a number of reasons. It was a ceremony for every Jewish boy welcome him into the covenant community of Israel, revealing that he was a seed of Abraham, that he was an Israelite, that he was a Jew. Now, Scripture teaches that Jesus was under the law. This is why Jesus was circumcised. We know that he was of the lineage of David, so he was clearly a Jew. And there were many privileges as a result of this circumcision. Jesus would not have been allowed to be a teacher. He would not have been allowed to enter into the synagogue or the temple if he had not been circumcised. Being circumcised gave him a number of rights of national privilege as far as Israel was concerned. So submission to circumcision reveals that he was born under the law of God. And remember that Jesus' entire life was one of submission to his heavenly Father. He would fulfill all righteousness in submitting to all that God called him to do. Now we must grasp this because it is our only hope that we likewise will appear before God and be accepted by God. It is the righteousness of God, that righteousness that you and I could not earn. Jesus worked it out daily, daily in His obedience, which saves sinners who trust in Him. And we must understand how we're saved. It is not only because Christ died on the cross. That's half of it. Christ had to die on the cross. He had to pay our penalty. He had to be the propitiation for our sins so that we might have peace with God. But that's only half of our salvation. We must have the other half of our salvation, and that is the righteousness of Christ so that God might accept us in His sight. And that righteousness comes from Christ. It is not a righteousness that we earn. It's a righteousness that Christ earned, and that righteousness came as a result of His obeying completely the law of God, which is called, of course, His active obedience. He obeyed His Father in every way. Children, do you remember the other obedience? There's the active obedience, and there was what that took place on the cross. It's called the passive obedience. So there's the active and passive obedience that brings us salvation. Now, of course, our sin is imputed to Christ there at Calvary. But that daily righteousness of the God-man is imputed to us who believe in Him, and we therefore, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, are the righteousness of God in Christ. So our hope is that Jesus Christ fulfilled all 
of the righteousness that God required for us. And therefore we are saved by His righteousness, not ours, because our righteousness, as we're clearly told, is filthy rags. God will not accept our righteousness. We sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If your hope is not in that, you have no salvation. Our hope is only in Christ and what Christ has accomplished. And we see here the first evidence of Christ's obedience to the law of God on the eighth day being circumcised. But there was a more significant value of this circumcision. Not only was it a sign of his Jewishness, of being of the lineage and line of David, but also circumcision was a sign of regeneration. Through this, God was saying to His people in the Old Covenant dispensation, as a people, your greatest need is a circumcised heart. Sin has taken a root in you. It's deep down in your inmost being and has stopped you from being able to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So circumcision is a sign that man's sinful attitude has to be cut out of his life. A great definite act of renewal must take place, which is called regeneration. As Jesus explained that to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3, that he must be born again. And Nicodemus should have known those things, but Nicodemus did not know those things, even though he was a teacher. And Jesus explained to him about regeneration, the new birth. And we say that this sign of circumcision in the Old Testament period clearly pointed to the fulfillment and reality of a new heart during the New Covenant. Now, there's a number of passages. I'm not going to read all of them because they're almost all identical, but I will state them to you so you can write them down if you so please. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 through 30, I'm sorry, verse 33, and then chapter 32, verse 40, and then Ezekiel eleven nineteen. maybe we might hear something on that tonight, since Ezekiel chapter 11 will be preached on, now it definitely will be, right? And then Ezekiel 36, 26, but let me read for you what this particular passage says. There's a little bit different in each of the verses, but they are almost identical. In Jeremiah verse 31, verse 33, it says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind, write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So it's speaking of the heart being circumcised. It's speaking of a person receiving a new heart. It's speaking of that old sinful nature being put to death. Now, it's almost identically repeated in Jeremiah, I mean, uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 through 12. 
which shows the parallelism with circumcision is not baptism. Our Presbyterian friends will tell you that the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament is parallel with the sign of baptism in the New Testament. Well, that's not true. What is true is circumcision of the heart. That's the parallelism there. Don't do as I did many years ago when I was uh, debating one of the professors at RTS in one of the classes. I fell into his trap and he said, now what is the sign of the Old Testament? Isn't it circumcision? I said, yes. Well, baptism is a sign of the New Testament, correct? And I agreed with him. And I lost the debate right there at the very beginning of the debate. I was not smart enough at that time. Not until I began to talk to Errol Hulse, my dear friend, who now is going to be with the Lord. And he said, oh, Thomas, you made a big mistake in his, in his South African accent. And he said, baptism is not the parallelism of circumcision. It is circumcision of the heart. So remember that when you talk to your Presbyterian friends. Matter of fact, I remember years ago I pointed out to a Presbyterian uh, the passage there in Jeremiah about a new heart and circumcision of the heart and said that is salvation. Now go over to Hebrews and I pointed out the Hebrews passage and he turned to a friend of his and he said, can you please help me out? He couldn't help him out. Anyway, I say all this to explain this morning that when we come to the end of our service and we have this special time, we are not dedicating babies this morning. But this congregation and the parents are making a commitment to do all that they can to make sure that these children know the Lord, that they will pray for them, that they will teach them, that they will do everything within their power using the means that God has given us to see that these children walk in the way of the Lord, praying that God would put them in the way of the Lord by changing their heart. So, but don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we aren't um, to give our children back to the Lord. You know, Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord. Hannah presented Samuel to Eli to serve there in the temple. And in one sense, every Christian parent is to do that. Every Christian parent should know that the children that God blesses you with are the Lord's children. He is the one that has blessed you with them. And therefore, in a sense, every Christian parent should do like Hannah did and present them to the Lord. For children are an inheritance from the Lord. And we give them back to God and pray that God would use them to worship Him and serve them, Him all the days of their life. Now the second thing that we see that happened was that Mary and Joseph visited the temple. This was 40 days later after Jesus was born because there were seven days according to the ceremonial law that Mary was to go through purification and then there was another 33 days that she could not come close to anything that was quote holy. So for 40 days she had to remain there before she went to the temple to present Jesus. Now after this time we see clearly that her and Joseph obeyed the ceremonial law by offering what was prescribed by God. Usually what was offered, offered was a lamb plus a dove or a pigeon. But a poor woman, as we see there in the text, 
could offer two doves or two pigeons. Now, of course, Mary and Joseph were poor, so they offered the two doves or pigeons. Now, by this law, and many like it, the Israelites were being taught a simple lesson. What is that lesson they were being taught? Well, it was about living pure and holy lives. Remember, during the Old Testament time, they were, as it were, in the childhood of their faith. They were in the shadow. And we are told that God, the God you serve, is holy. He is pure. And He wants His people to be pure and holy as well. And that's the basic lesson. That's all the way through the first five books of the Bible. It is emphasized over and over again that God is holy and that His people are to be holy. And if you look at the ceremonial laws, that is what it is primarily teaching us, that we are to be a holy people. But the most important lesson conveyed by these laws, as far as ritual purity, is that God is holy or God is pure and man isn't. Man is condemned. Man is unfit. Man in and of himself cannot approach a holy God without an offering. And of course, that's what Mary and Joseph were. They were coming before God with this offering. And Paul explains in Colossians chapter 2 that the ceremonial laws were a shadow. They were a type, all pointing to Christ, who was the substance that would fulfill them. Now something else happened there at the temple that was very special as well. And that was that Jesus' name was stated. It was recorded. They would record it in the book there in the temple because they kept up with all of the children, all of the families, all of the lineage. That's why we have what we have in Scripture ourselves as far as the lineage of Jesus is concerned, as well as others. It was recorded. So Jesus was stated, or uh, Joseph and Mary stated that his name shall be called Jesus. And of course we know why. Because the angel had gone to Joseph and told Joseph to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means Savior. He saves or Jehovah the Savior, or the Lord saves. This is what God wanted the people to primarily understand about His Son, that His Son was to be known as the Redeemer of men and women. So we see that Jesus was consecrated to the Lord by His parents, not simply as a priest of the temple or a prophet, but he was the prophet who was to preach the truth. He also was the king who had power over creation and over demons, sin and death, but especially as priest in offering himself as the sacrifice there at Calvary. Now having children and raising a family is an enormous influential task. Scripture says, raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There in Proverbs 22, 6. Now, this is our second passage that I want us to look at. Let me first state that this 
particular verse is not a promise. It is a principle in which normally it is true. So don't say one day, I raised my children in the admonition of the Lord and God hasn't saved them as He promised me. It's not a promise. It's a principle, a biblical principle, that if you do this, normally God honors it and He saves them. Now one thing I will tell you, the likelihood of your child being saved is very slim if you don't do that which God has required of you to do. If you don't raise them in the admonition of the Lord, we must remember that God uses means to bring the salvation of His people about. And the means are given in His Word. So therefore, we're to use those means to raise our children in a Christian home. We must understand that one of those means is godly parents teaching their children truth about God having them under the teaching and preaching of the gospel every Lord's Day, having family worship, which is important, bringing them to Sunday school. Morning and evening worship is important. Again, your example to your children, your lifestyle before your children teaches them much more than your words often. And we must keep that in mind. Also, every parent must realize that it is not the government's responsibility to raise the children. Even though our government is seeking to do all they can to raise children. Because they understand the influence that they can have on a child. And this is one reason why our nation is in such a mess. Parents have literally turned their children over to a pagan government. Having children and raising a family is the responsibility of parents, not the government. But let me also say that having children and raising children is not the responsibility of the church. It is the responsibility of the parents. Again, our children are going to be exposed to the world. Many of our children are exposed to the paganism that is in our government and is in our school system. We know that our school system, majority of it, is atheistic. It denies God. It promotes humanism. Most of our universities are anti-God. I mean, why do you think we've been having all the rights that we had all past summer? Who are the main ones involved in those rights? It's young people that are either still in college or just got out of college. Their heads have been polluted. They have been filled with all of this wicked mindset. Education, we understand, is one of the most important decisions that a parent can make. And to get it wrong is to expose your children to all kinds of wickedness, heresy, and error. Don't think that they are protected either simply because you send them to a so-called Christian school. Because many of the so-called Christian schools are not Christian. That's the reason why you have to understand it's your responsibility to raise your children in a Christian home. 
And as I've already mentioned, it is not the church's responsibility either. Now, it is the church's responsibility to hold parents accountable. That's one thing that we're doing today. That's why I am exhorting you. That's why I'm expounding the Word of God and I'm encouraging you to do that which God calls you to do as a parent, encouraging you in your duty. A few years ago when we had our parent commitment day, we gave everyone, and I ran off and left it in my office, so I'm not going to be able to read from it. You'll have to pick it up and read from it. But the pamphlet, The Duty of Parents, by J.C. Ryle. And in that, he gives 17 points about biblical training. At this point in my sermon, I was going to read them to you. But I'm not going to read them to you, so it's going to make my sermon a little bit shorter. But anyway, it's my responsibility as pastor, as elder, to press these truths on you and encourage you to fulfill them, to encourage you to make every effort to have family worship, to have your children in Sunday school, to have them in Bible drills so that they might learn how to use the Bible, to have them in Bible buddies, to have them in choir, to carry them to camp, to see that they're in worship, to make sure that they listen to the sermon. Even the youngest child that can talk, can get something out of the children, uh, out of the sermon. That's one reason why I stop sometimes in my sermon and I ask children, do you know this or do you know that? That is a signal to parents. That signal is you write that question down and ask that question that the pastor asked so that you might be able to have some kind of discussion around the lunch table after the sermon to see if they have learned at least one thing. Now, sometimes I have three or four questions to ask the children. Write all three or four down because you need to follow up as a pastor to see if they learned anything from the sermon. Hopefully, they'll learn at least one thing as they sit in the pew and listen to me preach. It's important that we make sure that they listen. i never forget years ago I was listening to John Gershner and he was sharing about his adopted daughter and said she was in church one Sunday and she was cutting up and after church that Sunday there at the mills asked her what did she learn of course she didn't learn anything he said now one thing I want you to do when you go to church is I want you to sit still and listen well the next Sunday rolled around and she sat very still and at lunchtime he asked her the question well what did you learn and she just gave him a blank stare and said, you must not heard everything I said. I want you to sit still, and I'm so happy you sat still this morning, but I want you to listen to what the pastor is saying, and I will quiz you next Sunday. And then the next Sunday she was able to repeat for him the questions that he asked her. So we need to emphasize that to our children. We need to catechize our children. Proverbs 22.6 says, train, up, train them up in a way that they should go. We have to remember the heart of a child, just like your heart and my heart was, has depravity. And we have to remember that it has its own ideas in the way that it should go. They don't think like we think as adults. They think differently. They think their own way. They think a deprived way. They think that it's okay to touch something that is hot. They think that it's okay to eat dog food. 
They think that it is okay to have their own ideas and, and snatch a toy from another child or hit another child or scream in church or walk toward a road where there's busy traffic. They think all of these things are okay. And it's our duty as parents is to do what? To stop them from doing those things and teach them the right way to do those particular things because we know that they have a bent toward evil. And we know that there are some in our family that have a bent toward evil more than others in the family. I mean, we'll ask God one day, why did this child, why was he so, my mama probably asked that question, why was he such a hard-headed child? So that he could be a pastor and be a hard-headed preacher, that's why. Well, God understands and God gives us the children. I've shared this before, you know, uh, when our children came along, we thought that we were such wonderful, great parents after our first two. And then God humbled us greatly. Now, I know my other two are not going to let me live that down, but, but I mean, that's just the facts. He, he used them to humble us. He used them to keep us more on our knees. And you understand that. If you have more than one child, you understand what I'm, I'm talking about. They're different. None of them are exactly alike. There may be similarities, but they're all different. And God has made them different, and He has a reason for making them different. So we have to understand that. Solomon tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. If you've had children, you know that. And then he goes on in Proverbs 29, 15, a child left to himself will bring a mother to shame. What is he indicating there? We must not leave them to their self. We must not let them make on their own decisions when they're young. We must instruct them. If you leave them to themselves, they will cause shame. Many mothers have wept over their sons and daughters due to the rebellion of them. So therefore, we must do all that we can. J.C. Ryle says, Our hearts are like the ground on which we tread. Leave it alone, and it will surely bring forth weeds. So you leave a child alone, it will surely bring forth weeds. How many of us have said, only if I could go back and have another opportunity to do this or that, well, you're not going to be able to go back and change. What's done is done, and the grace of God covers our ignorance and our mistakes that we made. We must not leave a child to his own guidance. Why would we do that in spiritual things when we don't do it in physical things. We instruct our children to bathe, to brush their teeth, to change their clothes. We instruct them how to cross the road. We do all of these things because we don't want them to be hurt. We don't want them to give a bad impression. I mean, you, you leave a boy to himself, he ain't never going to comb his hair. He's never going to take a bath. He's never going to change clothes, right? You know that, mama. You have to stay on them. So why in the world would we lead them to their self in spiritual things? We must think for them. We must judge for them. We must act for them. And we must lead, just as J.C. Ryle says, as if they are weak and blind. Don't give up on them, even though their hearts are inclined toward evil. And if they are left to their self, they will indulge in that evil. 
A child doesn't know what is best for them. And we need to instruct them in that. We need to tell them that. I mean, if you gave your child a stocking full of candy this past week and you didn't watch out, they'd eat every bit of it, would they not? I mean, they're not thinking about what's going to happen as a result of eating every bit of it. They're just thinking about how delicious these things and that stockings are right now. And they'll eat every bit of it in one sitting because he doesn't know what is good for his mind or his body or his soul. Now, one of the greatest problems that parents have is to be consistent. Consistent in dealing with their child in a biblical manner. Now, I hope you read this morning on the back of your bulletin what R.C. Sproul has said in answering a question that was asked of him about forcing your children to go to church. Um, It's interesting that he says parenting is um, maybe 10% hard work and effort and all that and 90% luck. Of course, he doesn't believe in luck, but you understand what he's saying. In, In other words, you can do everything right and still not work out the way that you plan on it working out. But the main point that he's making is that we must show love and compassion and mercy toward our children. Of course, it isn't easy, as I've already said. It's tough to be a godly parent. It is hard work. You must make sacrifice to be that kind of parent. And you will make mistakes no matter what. And you will regret the things that you do because you know that you will often even sin against your children. So you must be ready to ask for forgiveness when you do so so that you might be able to teach them how merciful and gracious God is. That God is able to forgive you and likewise God is able to forgive that child. Train a child in the way that he should go means you must know the way that he should go. In other words, you must know God's Word, what God says as far as instructing a child in the way that he should go. And and there's so many books out there. And some of those books are bad, but there's a lot of good books. Miss Bunny would be glad to instruct you on which ones are good. She has a lot of them back there in our book room that are on sale. But I encourage you to read good books in instructing children and teaching children. Talk to them about how they should follow the commandments of the Lord. Talk to those who have already raised their children. Now when I say they already raised their children, in one sense we never stop raising our children. I continue to try to raise my children even though they have children on their own. But that's our responsibility. We're always a parent if we have children to the day that we die. And we must remember that. But even doing all of those things, we must pray, pray, and pray. If you are not sold out to this principle of training them in the way that they should go, then it is useless for you to try to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. You must be sold out to that principle. Now the second half of that verse is when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now again, I remind you of what I said just a few moments ago. This doesn't mean that he will be saved. But 
the likelihood of him being saved is more so if you do these things that the scripture teaches. One thing for sure, that which you teach him as far as the word of God is concerned will be implanted in his mind. Even though he might depart from it, he will know right from wrong. If you taught them, they have it in them. Now they may suppress it, just like a strong spring, it is trying to spring up even though they are pushing down on it and rejecting it. Deep inside them, it is crying out to them that they know what is right. And we must pray for God to use the truth that they know to bring about conviction of sin in their heart. That's one reason why we catechize our children with Baptist catechism so that those catechisms might come to their mind again one day and that they might understand that God is able to save the worst of sinners, that Jesus Christ is the great Savior, that Jesus Christ is their only hope to cause them to see that the wages of sin is death and if they continue in their sin that they will experience death. So therefore they must trust in Christ. They must look to Christ and repent of their sins. Adonai Judson, who became the great missionary there in India, uh, Burma, was uh, convicted by, he said, his parents' prayers as he would come home from his nights out on the town and hear his parents pray. It convicted him and eventually brought him to salvation. Most of you know about Monica, who her frustration and parental misery took it to God and, and ran after her son, Augustine. She prayed and, and she uh, fasted and she wept over her son's wayward ways. And this led even to the point to where an unnamed bishop one day consoled her by saying, the child of those tears shall never perish. When Augustine left, and fled to Rome, she followed after him. When she moved there to Milan, she kept on his trail. Like a good mother, she did not let her son's stubbornness, his stupidity, and his blatant sin obscure her from her love for him. Augustine writes, like all mothers, though far more than most, she loved to have me with her. And she did not know how much joy she created as a mother in my absence. She did not know, and so she wept and wailed, and these cries of pain revealed that there was left of Eve in her. As in anguish she sought the son whom in anguish she had brought in birth. She went and when she had finished blaming my deception and cruelty, she resumed her entreating of me. And of course, in the end, it all paid off. After 17 years of resistance, and I repeat that, after 17 years of resistance, Augustine converted to Christianity under the wise instruction of St. Ambrose. Monica 
continued, though, to suffer and pray for her own husband who was unconverted. And after 30 years, God was pleased to save him. So therefore, God is a gracious and merciful God, and he hears and answers our prayers. Of course, one of our favorite parables is what? The prodigal son. The one who was in the family, though unconverted, left the family for years of rebellion, and then he came to salvation as he was eating the pig food. God woke him up, and he came back home to reveal that God had converted him, and he was welcome into the family. As long as your children are alive, there is still hope, for God is a gracious God. And may God give us children that do not rebel, but children that will live all of the days of their life for God. May they be, God may be pleased to use them for His honor and glory. In closing, let me press again on everyone here the importance of using every single means that God has given us in His Word to train up a child in the admonition of the Lord so that they are ready for heaven. We know that God is a sovereign God and does all things according to His counsel, His own counsel. But I also know that He is a God that uses means, biblical means. And if you use these biblical means, God will most likely bless them. J.C. Ryle says, Fathers and mothers, you may take your children to be baptized and have them enrolled in the ranks of Christ's church. You may get godly sponsors to answer for them and help you by their prayers. And you may send them to the best of schools and give them Bibles and prayer books and fill them with head knowledge. But if all this time there is no regular training at home, I tell you plainly, I fear it will go hard in the end with your children's soul. Home is the place where habits are formed. Home is the place where foundations of character are laid. Home gives the bias of our taste, likes, and opinion. See then, I pray you, that there be careful training at home Happy indeed is the man who can say, as Bolton did upon his dying bed to his children, I do believe not one of you will dare to meet me before the trivial of Christ in an unregenerate state. Fathers and mothers, I charge you solemnly before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, take every pain to train your children in the way that he should go. I charge you not merely for the sake of your children's soul. I charge you for the sake of your future comfort and peace. Truly, it is your interest to do so. Truly, your own blessing is great measures upon it. Children have ever been the bow from which the sharpest arrow have pierced man's heart. Children have mixed the bitterest cup that man has ever drank. Children have caused the saddest tears that man has ever had to share. Adam 
could tell you. Jacob could tell you. David could tell you. There are sorrows upon earth, no sorrows upon earth, like that of children who have brought upon their parents. Oh, take heed, lest your own neglect should lay up misery for you in your old age. Take heed, lest you weep under the ill treatment of a thankless child in the days when your eye is dim and your natural forces abate. If ever you wish your children to be restored of your restorer of your life and the nurture of your old age, if you would have them bless and not curse, joy and not sorrow, Judas and not Reubens, Ruth and not Orphans, if you would not, like Noah, be ashamed of their deed and Rebekah, be made weary of your life by them. If this is your wish, remember my advice. Train them while your children are young in the right way. May it be so. May God use us as parents to train up a child in the way they should go so that they will not depart from it when they are old. Let us pray.